We have always existed, and we are still here. Telling the stories of those slung dead, we won't disappear. We're taking the pen back into our own hands. We live and we breathe and we keep creating, taking a stand. History is queerer than you. Welcome to the Making Queer History podcast, where we connect our queer history to our queer present. I'm Laura. And I'm Will. And today we're going to be talking about... Carl Heinrich Ullrich. I'm very excited. This is like a very, you know, queer history, queer history figure. You know, one of the big ones, definitely. Definitely like Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, Marsha P. Johnson, Carl Heinrich Ullrich. I- I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But like, those are the big, big ones, I think. It's it's fun because like part of as part of queer history you have people who are part of queer history and then you have people who are part of queer history. Yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. And like he definitely made a dent, and I I really enjoy looking at him because he definitely explores like the queer history of Europe. I think, and that's a big big exaggeration because you know Europe's a big place. But I think we often you know narrow down the queer movement to America. I I think I talked about this at the beginning of the article that I wrote. It it it, it we start out being like you know. The queer movement started with Marsha P. Johnson, and Marsha P. Johnson definitely, well, not Marsha P. Johnson alone, but Stonewall definitely changed the tides of the queer movement in America. But, like, queer movement as a, it's really interesting, because you, you can sort of trace back the queer community, almost, to Carl Henrik Ulrichs, because he was the first one in Europe, well, one of the first ones, one of the early ones, to view it as an identity instead of an action so we get to we're going to explore that a little bit and sort of like look at at sort of what that means for the queer community and what that means in our lives now and how that has impacted us today and how we understand queerness so i'm excited for that as for news this podcast will be coming to your ears a little late if you are a patron. Uh, it's just, you know, I didn't manage my time as well as maybe I should have last month. There was just a lot of things going on, but uh, we're here to you now. And if you are not a patron, you'll be getting this on time, but you will still be getting this much later than all the patrons have gotten it. And the patrons will get the most recent news and news before anyone else has he- heard it. So in terms of news before anyone else has heard it, here's a couple exciting things that are coming up. First, right now, Dean is working with the newsletter thing to send out some really cool things for uh, all throughout the month of October, just like celebrating queer history. And you've actually probably already seen that a little bit on social media if you follow us there. And yeah, it's just been really cool lately. And Dean has been killing it on that front. Another thing that is going to be happening, and this is like very, you know, before it's going to happen, because I think even the non-patrons will be hearing this before social media hears this. But we are thinking and sort of workshopping with starting a book club, starting a making queer history, uh, queer history book club. There's some amazing books that I'm really excited to share with y'all, some that I've read, hopefully some that I haven't. Yeah, and we can, you know, read and discuss. And yeah, I'm just really excited. There's a lot of big things that I'm planning for it and a lot of really cool tie-ins to other things that I I want to participate in. And there's going to be some like a little bit changes to the project. Like I wouldn't say they're like huge or anything, but they're, they're sort of changing the way we approach certain parts of the project. So I'm excited. I hope y'all are excited and I'm just, you know, I'm workshopping it and I'm having a lot of fun figuring out what it's going to look like and what ideas I have for it. And, and yeah, so that's, that's mostly it for news. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. 
Um, COVID's still going. It, it it's happening, it's still and going. and we're we're tired, but here we are. I'm trying to think. Is there any like exciting queer news on the horizon right now? I don't think so. Okay. Um. There's always something happening in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, feel free to always email us if you want us to talk about something that is happening in your country or even in your just town. Queerhistorypatreon at gmail.com. And we'd love to talk about it on the podcast. Yeah. So I think we're just going to dive in. We're going to try and, you know, just get to it. I- I'm excited about this one. So Karl Heinrich Ulrichs was born August 28th in 1825. In a city called Westerfeld, uh, that is now, I believe, called Aurich. And this was at the time part of the Kingdom of Hanover, which is now northwestern Germany. Okay. And he was pretty aware of his queerness from a young age. Mm-hmm. He. Oh, uh, I'll pause really quick and just say before we go any deeper into this. We are going to be discussing sexual abuse. We're just going to be glancing over it. But if you're not up for talking about that or listening to that, I guess, please feel free to skip this podcast episode or just skip the next portion of it. I'd say like 10 minutes would be fine. And you can jump back in. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Uh, Yeah, we're just going to be mentioning it. One of his first experiences with um, like sexuality as a whole was sexual abuse, unfortunately, which made him really passionate about the difference between queerness and sexual abuse. Because at the time, they were seen as the same thing, which is a part of why queerness specifically was so demonized. Like, queerness and sexual abuse of minors were completely linked in most of society's eyes. And that's something that Carl wanted to remove, because as a queer man himself, he knew that that did not have to be a case. And as a survivor of uh, sexual uh, abuse himself, he knew that to not be the case, because, you know, it was different. So, yeah, that's pretty much all we're going to say on that one. Yeah, it it's weird, because I read a couple of other articles... Mm-hmm. about his early life and some of them just like bring it up as if it was a positive thing i that really frustrates me because i know that he remembered it as a negative thing like mm-hmm. that's not a because i i think that you know there's something to be said for and i don't think this applies to history but there's something to be said for letting someone else's experiences be their experiences mm-hmm. like if someone has a really negative thing happen to them but they don't remember it in the most negative light it could be remembered just leave it alone Mm-hmm. It's not your job to, unless you're a therapist, maybe, um, but it's not your job to bring them into the trauma of it. But, you know, it, it really bothers me that they did it with him specifically, because the whole point was he was like, no, this is different. Yeah, these, these are two, two separate are, experiences, are and they should not be compared at all. Because they're, they're different, and yeah, and that's really frustrating. I think it just, like, does show that the link between sexual abuse and queerness still does exist, mm-hmm. like, very oh, for clearly, sure. and a lot of people have a really hard time letting go of it, I think. Um, not in the way that we, we shouldn't talk about sexual abuse and queerness in the same conversation, because we should sometimes, but more in the way that, like, a lot of people know that as a part of our history, and are unable to let go of that part of our history. Because, you know, I, I think we, I guess we're going to continue to talk talking about sexual abuse. So again, you know, if you're not up for talking about this, we're not going to go in depth about any details, but we're going to continue talking about it. Um, but the history of the queer community includes a lot of sexual abuse. It does. Like, you can't really argue that. And I I get really frustrated when, when people try and erase that for one way or the other, to either, like, portray these uh, relationships as positive, great things, or to portray them as, like, they are negative. Like, it's it's sort of hard to say. But, like, I I get frustrated when people try to portray these relationships that have sexual abuse in them as something not 
filled with sexual abuse. And then I get really also frustrated with people who sort of come in and they're like, this age gap is inappropriate, even though it is a completely normal age gap from the time. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion to be had there, but it does frustrate me when, you know, I see people talking about these age gaps that they would never criticize in a heterosexual relationship. Mm -hmm. But I also understand because these things are linked. Like we have a history linking these two things. We can't deny that. But I think there's no reason to glorify it. There's no reason to ignore it. And there's no reason to, you know, pretend it was anything but it was, which is a negative thing to exist in a community. And specifically something that existed largely because of homophobia. Because the facts are sexual abuse thrives in silence. And for a while... It was the place where it was the most silent. You talked about it the least, so people were least prepared and safe to deal with these kind of things. Anyways, let's continue on and move on from that. So Carl got his degrees. Uh, he studied law and theology in Göttingen and then later went to Berlin to study history. And then he worked as a lawyer for the district court of Hildesheim until 1857. Mm -hmm. In which year he was fired... Mm -hmm. because they learned that he was queer. Which, you know, he's he was really a groundbreaker in, in <laughs> um, sort of describing himself as a queer person. Like, obviously, he didn't use the, the words queer, but he knew it as a part about it, his identity, which it wasn't known as at the time. It was known as a thing you did. Like, you know... An, an action. An action. And instead of, like, a part of who you are as a person. And he described it as that. And, you know, obviously that did not help his career. Um, but he was becoming more comfortable about uh, about his identity around that time. And he even, like, came out to his family as uh, what he called an earning. Which uh, was one of the very early names for queerness in specifically that area. And one name that sort of sticks around a little bit. You'll sort of, if you're looking into queer history, you'll you'll see that name thrown about a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, it's still a, a used name, if, if a little outdated. It, and it's not outdated in the way a lot of other names are outdated, where it's sort of become offensive. I think earning is one of the outdated names that, you know, I would struggle to find a really negative background for. It is often translated in English into Uranian, mm -hmm. and it comes from Plato's Symposium, actually, because <laughs> there's talk about how different loves are are defined, and there is, uh, I think there's like an Aphrodite born from a man, mm -hmm. and then there's an Aphrodite born from a woman, and mm -hmm. that's how uh, Carl defined like where he got these terms from so so earning for for the queer men and then dioning for for the non-queer men more or less exactly and you know it's it's not only interesting in that like it define it used a label for the person instead of just you know the act itself but it also defined people who did not experience that that's a, a discussion we we're still having with um trans and cis you know, a lot of people were really offended. I remember in my early Tumblr days, there there were some people who were like, it's it's discriminatory to call cis people cis. Because, you know, naming both means that one isn't normal. I don't know if that makes sense. But like, people get it into their heads that one's a default and one's the weird one, right? So naming them both sort of changes that dynamic a little bit just a, a tiny little shift and it upsets a lot of people even now like you can see it with a lot of new communities and a lot of older communities or like newer labeled communities i think that's a better way of saying that because uh I, I do remember that like um what what do they call 
uh, people who do experience sexual attraction. Allosexual. Allosexual. That I was the whole was, thing. That was that they people kicked up a fuss about that, which was obviously a very silly thing to kick up a fuss about. But it's interesting to know that it traces back as far as this, you know, mm-hmm. sort of that discussion of who should we label and who needs labels, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, there's there's also <laughs> yeah, I guess this discussion just still going around. You know what place labels have in our society and and earning. And, you know, Ulrich obviously really, I wouldn't say began the discussion because there were labels for queerness before that, but he began the discussion where he was. And he began the discussion in a more sort of argumentative way than a cultural way. Because, like, a lot of cultures have had names for these things, but he, we can look at a direct source here, which we don't often get. Mm -hmm. He he coined the term and then started using it. Exactly. And he, he like, again, we, we talked about, like, why he coined the term. He was going through, like, he was trying to remove the separation between the action and the person. Because, you know, when you sort of separate queerness into just an action, like a queer act, and only understand queerness as, like, an action one can make, it is much more punishable, if that makes sense. It's much more easy for the people who disagree with it or who find moral quandary with queer people existing to justify that. Because it it's much harder to have a discussion of saying, I think that people who are born a certain way should not have been born a certain way. Rather than, I think people shouldn't do this specific thing. Mm-hmm. And that discussion is definitely still happening. You know, I remember growing up as a queer person in a Christian household. Uh, you know, you could be queer. You just shouldn't act on it. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you shouldn't do the queer actions. You could be a queer person, but you can't do the queer actions. So that's a discussion that also is, is still happening, which is also really interesting. And I believe um, Carl was one of the first people to coin the idea of like, while this is a very controversial idea today and not really necessarily a good idea, I believe he coined, he came up with the, with the concept that queerness was a germ. Yeah, 100%. Or like um, sort of a, a and we like can a definitely sickness? 100%. And we can definitely see that as a negative thing in, in our modern viewpoint. And I think this is one of the, the points where it becomes really interesting to look at how things have changed over time. Because we can look at that from a modern point and be like, um, it's not a sickness because... You know, it doesn't affect us negatively, but more positively for the time, it was him defining things as something you were born with or Mm -hmm. something that was unchangeable about you instead of something that, you know, you were an action you were choosing to make. And it was, you know, an identity. It Mm -hmm. it was really the beginning, like the first evolutionary step or not the first. One of many one of one early evolutionary step in sort of the creation and understanding of, of queerness as an identity. Uh, Magnus Hirschfeld would go on to say similar things. And, you know, we still say similar things. We, we've just changed the wording. We no longer see it as a sickness. And rather, instead, are saying born this way. You know, yeah. we... we yeah, we're born this way. And it's a, like a very classic ideology. It just started a little different and maybe started in a place that might make you like a little uncomfortable to look back on, which is understandable and I don't judge you for. But it actually was like a huge shift in the discussion. Like a really revolutionary mm-hmm. point of view and like way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's like one of the thought processes that made it easier to fight against le- legislation. 100%. 100%. Cuz you're like you can't Act like you can't discriminate like this against people who aren't choosing to be this way, right? Yeah, and like it, it definitely has taken a lot of fighting from them, but it was like a huge step. And you know, I, I do, you know, 
it, it, it's hard to define because I want to say like he's one of the early like first ones, but he he's early is a much better word than first. But the people were having this discussion around him as well. And he was, you know, at the beginning of these, you know, discussions in Europe specifically. And around the same time as earning came out as sort of like a word, um, the word homosexual started becoming in use, which actually Carl did not, was not a huge fan of that word. He really disliked the word homosexual. One, because it, it mixed Greek and Latin, which he thought was awful. He hated that, which... <laughs> I think it's funny. I don't know why I think it's funny, but I, I genuinely think it's funny. But also he resented that sexual was a part of the word at all, as he was working to expand the understanding of queerness to be seen beyond sexual acts. Like, you could have queer love without sex, which is something, again, a thing we're still discussing, you know? Something, you know... I've seen a backlash against, especially recently, having the, the split attraction model. And something that was being talked about as early as back then is, is sort of judge now as this new modern invention, but the split attraction model is very old. And you know, it, it traces back to, I think, way before Carl. But he, he did talk about it. And he, he discussed the fact that, you know, you could be a queer person without engaging in queer sexual acts. And you could be a queer person without having a sexual relationship, without mm -hmm. engaging in like, queer romance was as much part of queerness as queer sex was. I think, he, yeah, in the beginning, he believed there was only one quote-unquote germ, right? Yeah. And then later, through correspondence with, with other queer people, mm -hmm. friends of his and, like, in, in personal conversations or through letters that he received in response to his, his essays, yeah, he later, like, came back to it and was like, okay, there are two or more different quote-unquote germs, and these are... For people who have a sensual attraction mm -hmm. to men, and for people who have a... What's the word he used? Like, emotional? I don't remember the word he used. Uh, tender and sentimental. That's the one. And that's, that's like, how we define, like, different attractions. 100%. Um, I'm gonna quote uh, Hubert Kennedy, who I think is a scholar, who wrote, By the end of 1864, Ulrich's increasing contacts with other earnings, both direct contact and through correspondence with readers of his first publications, had convinced Ulrich's that things were not as simple as he had originally thought. Thus, there were men who loved women and men alike. There were men who loved men tenderly and sentimentally, but desired women sensually, and so on. To accommodate these possibilities, he expanded his theory and assumed that there was not one germ for the sexual drive, as he had first assumed, but two. One for tender and sentimental love, and one for sensual love. But that's really something we're, we're still talking about today, and, you know, we're still talking and making labels and, and, and figuring out different ways to discuss all these different identities that exist. But it's, it's really interesting to see someone go through that process. Like, one individual goes through that process rather than, you know, well, obviously there was a community helping him through that process, but you know, growing up with that process on, you know, a social media site, it, it feels very different than it must have felt for him. Mm -hmm. And how quickly he adapted is, is so interesting to me. It really is. He was just so ready mm -hmm. to be a change had the way he was thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I, I think he, there's another quote here. This one's from Carl himself. And he was just talking about how he, his, his system was complicated, but he embraced that and predicted uh, continued growth in determining and labeling these kinds of love and attraction, saying, I suppose a future researcher will discover an underlying law for this apparent chaos of varieties. 
a law according to which the seeming arbitrariness of this mixture becomes a necessity of nature. Needed for this is a comprehensive observation of individuals who belong to the particular varieties and, of course, a bit of talent for gaining new insight by taking the synoptic view of the variety. One must find a formula for this law, I might say, just as exact as the formula Kepler once found for the laws of motions of planets and comets. And, you know, he predicted, like, like, uh, the Kenzie scale. He really he did. Kenzie, which I think is so interesting. And, you know, also he predicted Magnus Hirschfeld, or he he knew that there would be growth beyond him and beyond his beginning understanding. And I love the recognizing that, like, he was just one man of his time 100%. and that he couldn't know everything. And I think that's, one, very queer of him mm-hmm. in terms of, like, you know, you talk to cis straight men and they're like, yeah. I... Know everything that has ever been known and ever will be known. Yeah. And I think, like, his existence with queerness and probably his, like, first response to his, his writings of, of people coming back and be like, well, my experience of queerness is different, was probably such, had such an impact on him, which I think is also, like, a, just a really fascinating thing for him to have gone through of, of being like, okay, I think I understand queerness. And then having a whole bunch of letters come and be like, actually... And the fact that he adapted to that's great. That's right? something that people definitely still have troubles with, you know. Honestly. People who experience queerness themselves often define queerness by their own experience. Instead of being like, oh, it's a vast, beautiful thing that, like, so many people have experienced different things. They're like, queerness has to exist in this way. Because Otherwise, I experience in this way. Exactly, exactly. Which is obviously a really frustrating thing. I, I hate it so much. And I feel like it's yeah. especially prominent in, like, trans communities. Mm-hmm, 100%. Because uh, I, I see a lot of especially binary trans people be like, oh, um... This, this is, is how dysphoria exists. This is how transness exists. This is how... I've experienced it this way, so this is how it exists. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it. And especially binary trans people being like non-binary genders don't exist. Because, you know, they obviously have an attachment to binary genders, which makes sense. But that doesn't, you know... It is interesting to see see people defining queerness by their own experience of it rather than mm-hmm. the realities of it. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a lot of uh, that going on in turf communities as well. It's also mm-hmm. going on in um, aphobic communities. I think that was a big part of the backlash um, towards asexual people discussing and talking more within the queer community was aphobic people being like, this isn't how I experience queerness, so fuck you. Right. And, you know, we've talked about this earlier. It's also, you know, in, in the idea of transness as something that requires dysphoria. You know, mm-hmm. some trans people, a lot of trans people, even the majority of trans people experience dysphoria. So they're like, this is how, well, that's a, that's an extension. Some people are like, this is how it has to be because most of the people I know experience it that way. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a limiting view. It's it's such a, it's such a lack of acknowledgement to the diversity of, of the human experience. And not only the diversity of the human experience, but like the uniqueness of everyone on itself, you know? We're not all the same. We're not always going to experience it the same ways. All the words that exist, as many as we can make up, not all of them will fit all the experiences we have. And just because one person has decided a definition for a word, that doesn't mean it's the community's definition. You know, there's bisexual people who legitimately think bisexuality is like, excludes trans people. And that's a shitty opinion to have. And most bisexual people aren't like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know... I think there is a, a part of the queer community that 
one of the more toxic parts where, you know, people use their understanding of their own queerness to inflict that upon others, to be like, this is how queerness exists, which makes sense because a lot of people had to figure it out themselves. So they become attached to the definition. But I think seeing that Carl Henrik Ulrich, someone from so far in the past, was able to move past that does give me hope that most people will be too. Like as much as I'm like criticizing the people, most people that I know have probably grown out of it. You know, mm-hmm. the the 15 year olds on Tumblr who are like, you know, this is how queerness exists. I hope they've grown past it. I hope so too. Fingers crossed. Right? <laughs> we're, we're really crossing our fingers on that one. And you know, if you are one of those people who maybe experienced that, who, who, you know, thought these things for a while, that's okay. We grow. Mm-hmm. That's normal. That's like, a normal like Carl part. did. Exactly. Like he literally came out being like, okay, this is what queerness is. Then he got more information and he grew out of it. And, you know, if you go through that process, that's fantastic. You mm-hmm. know, I just hope that everyone goes through that process of learning and accepting that their version of reality is not the only one. And I think one of the things is that Carl also didn't realize the vastness of the queer community. 100%. He didn't know how large it was or how many queer people there existed. He he probably knew he wasn't alone, but he didn't know how many or how big mm-hmm. it could be. Yeah. And I think that's probably also like a big thing of not understanding it is not yeah. knowing the scope. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. And you know, he he's really one of the early ones and, and as much as I, I try to avoid saying first and I, I've had trouble with that this whole episode. He was the first in this one. Uh, he was the man who, on the 29th of August, um, 1867, became the first queer person to speak publicly in the defense of queerness. He did so by pleading with a Congress of German jurists, urging them to repeal anti-homosexuality laws. And he was shouted down, because it was uh, no one 1867. Wants to yes. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't forgotten. And, you know, even if it was shouted down and, and hated... It wasn't forgotten, and it was the first time a lot of people probably heard queerness discussed in a positive way, in a way that someone was defending it. And as much as probably most people in the crowd are shouting, saying, shut the hell up, there were probably a lot of queer people in the audience hearing for one of the first times a man say, queerness deserves to be here, queerness deserves a place on this earth, just as much as anything else. And since we mentioned Magnus Hirschfeld earlier, Mm -hmm. let's read this quote from him. Yeah. As one of the first and noblest of those who have striven with courage and strength in this field to help truth and charity gain their rightful place. Isn't that, isn't that lovely? And that's what he said about Carl. And you know, his words and in his writings, you know, are proven to have existed within the minds of a lot of queer people after him, including, you know, another famous name, Oscar Wilde. And his showing of queerness in a positive light surely had an impact on a lot of people because of that. And um, Carl himself defined his role within the queer movement quite beautifully, saying, I am proud that I found the courage to deal the initial blow to the hydra of public contempt. Which, it's accuracy. It's, it's such a good quote. It's a great quote, because it is what he did. It's what he did. He, d- he dealt the initial blow. And you can see it so vividly that the initial blow must have been so hard. But every one after that got easier. And, and, you know, I have this metaphor that I like going back to about queer history being a pathway through the snow. And the snow keeps coming down, but, like, the more people walk on it, the more you see, the easier it gets for the next person behind you, you know? And I think Carl is a really big illustration of that, because while his, his first speech was shouted down, and it was probably a 
horrible experience. Like, I don't want to, you know, call to mind too many traumatic memories for us. But, you know, have you ever been in the front of a high school classroom and have no one care? That's emotionally devastating. It really Imagine is. how much it would have been for him to go in front of his peers and his colleagues and even probably mentors and his family and strangers and have them not only, you know, ignore what most of what he said, but shout at him, tell him, you know, probably a lot of awful things about himself. It must have been such a scary thing to go through. And, you know, there is a lot of pride in that he went through it, you know, and we can definitely be grateful to him for that. And yeah, I think that's something that's really nice to look back on and be proud of. I think that's something we can definitely be proud of. I know I'm not going to quote this perfectly, but there's this other queer person, um, Willem something or another. And he was um, an anti-fascist rebel during World War II, killing Nazis. Good job, Willem. We love you. Um, And one of the things that he said before he died was that he wanted to prove that queer people, specifically homosexual men, were not cowards. That they were brave and strong and courageous. And I think that That is something that is so clear if you look at history. And, you know, sometimes I criticize, you know, the white, gay, cis men in our community because there are some issues, but there's been so much courage found within that level of queerness, just as every level of queerness, you know? There's, there must have been so much given up for Carl to make that step. There must have been so much given up for Willem to make that step. There was so much to be given up for every queer person who's ever exist to deal the blow that they dealt personally against the Hydra of public contempt. Because everyone's given a personal... If you're a queer person, you have given a blow to the Hydra of uh, public contempt. You've done it. And the courage it takes to do that is incredible. And I, I think that's something deserves to be proud of. And it deserves respect. Existing as a queer person is revolutionary. 100%. Like every every day of it. Mm-hmm. And you know, there were people before him. There were people after him. There were people before him who made his life as a queer person easier. Who made him understand queerness sooner. You know, we see that in like how he just got like the words he came up. They didn't come from nowhere. He didn't name queerness after himself. Though it sort of sounds like he did. He didn't. <laughs> but, you know... It, it, it is such an important part of queer history to see the, the path that we've created for each other. And, you know, whether we all agree, we're, we're still on that same path and we're still wearing the road down. So it's easier for the people who come behind us. And yeah, I think that he's just like such an incredible example of that. Yeah, he really is. Definitely one of the names that like I feel proud of knowing. You know, there's a lot of queer people in history that I, I feel really proud to know I'm in the same community as them. And Carl Henry Gullrichs is definitely one of them. Now I want to just like list off my favorite ones, but like I won't do that. That'll be like six hour thing. I'll just be listing off my articles. No, that's <laughs> not true. There's a couple of them that I'm like, I guess we have to share a community. Fine. <sighs> Who I'm talking about is Salvador Dali. Yeah, I see. It's Salvador Dali. <laughs> I haven't written an article about him, but like it, it's the funniest thing. Dina's like, one day you're just going to disappear for a month and you're going to come back with a like six page, like, single spaced article about Salvador Dali just tearing the man to shreds and I'm like one day you will never hear from me again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he, he's one of the people that I'm like eh, I guess we share a community if we have to <laughs> but he can sit in that corner over there yeah and I will be outside I'll be outside I'll be outside I'm just gonna I'm gonna hang out with Carl 
he can hang out with Oscar Wilde. Separation. <laughs> <laughs> I had to try drag Oscar as well. I just recently wrote an article where he was a part of it and we mentioned him again. And I'm like, oh, Oscar. Some, oh, Oscar. Did some bad things. You are the knot in my hair every day. <laughs> oh, he is such a difficult person to talk about. He is. Because he did. He did important things, but I'm also like, I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> I personally would not be friends with you, but we should still talk about him. Like, the, we can recognize the good things he did, the bad things he did, all in the same soup. But I wouldn't hang out with him at the big queer history party that I'm assuming <laughs> the afterlife is. That's, that's pretty much what it is. Having watched The Good Place, yeah, that's, that's what, what it's the afterlife you know, is. They can hang out over there. I will, I, I'll hang out talking to Carl. I'll be like, so, how you doing? <laughs> What's your favorite flower? I don't know. Let's talk about it, babe. And, you know, just avoid a couple more. <laughs> Salvador and, um, I don't think Salvador would get into the good place. Oh, probably not. I'm not sure Oscar would either. Probably not. I, anyways, I'll stop, like, being like, who's gonna go there? <laughs> I am queer guy. <laughs> I'm gonna make that judgment now. I'm in charge of it. Make a list. Yeah, I'm going to make a list. I'm going to judge every queer person on whether they're getting to the good place or not. I think the, like, the only judgment I could make was whether I'd invite them to a party, which I do, I do have that internal list. If you're wondering if like, I have like in my head reading these stories and learning about them and like in my head, I'm like, yeah, I think we could vibe. I do have that list. Yes. I'm not telling you it. Because y'all will drag me so hard for the people I want to be friends with. Email us if you want to hear the list. (laughs) I uh, will not negotiate with you. (laughs) Or any of you. Yeah, no, everyone would drag me so hard if they heard that list. No, yep, yep. Anyways, (laughs) we're just going to skate on past that. We're going to move into our next section, Wrecking the Queers, where we recommend things and you wreck us. So, um, whose turn is it? Me. It's Will's turn to recommend something. Go. Do we have any wrecks? Oh, no. Everyone's been lovely. Y'all get on talking to to us. us. Yeah. But no, like, there's been, like, a couple of people sending in messages, but none that, like... I think apply to more than them. Cool. Today's recommendation is a video game. Okay. Wow. I did not expect that. Right? Did you? And it is called Tell Me Why. And it is made by a company called Don't Don't Nod, who also made The Last of Us. And a lot of people, I have never played The Last of Us. But people Uh, are vibing with it People really like The Last of Us. I think there is a, a queer person in those as well. But yes, Tell Me Why is a really devastating emotional journey. Love that. Um, about two siblings mm-hmm. who reunite for the first time after 10 years mm-hmm. and return to their childhood home. They, they initially just want to sell it, but then they end up sort of unraveling the uh, emotional trauma that they experienced. Amazing. And Iconic. there's a lot of things about like healing and growth and moving past trauma or holding on to trauma. And also, one of the main characters is the first playable trans made character of any game that as far as I'm aware of. Nice. And it's just really wonderful. They had uh, a trans man do the um, voice Voice. acting. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of consultation with a lot of trans people on on the game. Mm -hmm. And it is just a really, really beautiful, beautiful game. I I haven't played it. I watched a couple of playthroughs because I was so excited for this to come out. I'm not playing it specifically because I'm in school right now. And and (laughs) if I buy it, I will just not stop playing it. But there's a lot of really nice things about like trans representation in Mm -hmm. it. At one point you see a calendar 
uh, that Tyler has, who is the main one of the main characters. And every week, he has a little inscription on it that says, um, just like, tea injection. Mm, yeah. And it's just, like, really sweet yeah. and nice. and nice like details very, like that. Right? And they are, like, clearly, like, done it in such a respectful way. And while there are people being shitty about it in, in, in game, mm-hmm. and there's a little bit of, like, oof. Yeah. Mm. It's a very realistic portrayal of it. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people actually like come back to him and they're like, hey, I'm sorry I dealt with it this way. Um, mm-hmm. I did some research and I think I understand better now. Mm-hmm. And it's like really nice to have these sort of dialogues happen in a video game. What and like fun. in in a media like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um if you enjoy emotional journeys, be and, and crying, um <laughs> like Will. <laughs> like me. Um Watch a playthrough or see if you can uh, play the game. Tell me why. A little bit of a warning. There is a bit of discussion about like abusive relationships, abusive like family relationships mm-hmm. and like in a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. There is also death. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, it's a very, like I said, devastating game, but also overall beautiful. And I definitely cried more than once. Weird. So yeah, play Tell Me Why. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I have a question. Yes. I've been thinking about it since you started recommending and since you stated that I wasn't being able to recommend this month. Is a loophole for this that I can recommend something that's not explicitly queer? I'm just recommending it offhand, you know, just randomly for no reason. Yeah, what is it? Read Mexican Gothic. It's so good. It's so good! Mexican Gothic, so good. So good. It's not explicitly queer anywhere that I remember. Um, read it. Anyways, <laughs> it's great. It's just a great... Though... I will ask you as a favor to me, read the trigger warning before you start, because I do not want to accidentally get anyone to read it who's not prepared for what it actually is. Because there's a lot of moments where I'm like, oh my god, oh my god. And I'm like, y'all y'all know I'm a huge horror fan. I love horror. And I'm, like, I'm not sure I'd count this as horror. No, I would. I would. Never mind. Never mind. I would. I was thinking of a scene. Never mind. I'd count it as horror. But yeah, that's my non-recommendation. Horrifying. Horrifying. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Gross scenes. But fantastic book. Amazing. Oh, incredible. Read it. Mexican Gothic. One of the best books out right now. That That's such an extension. One of the best books recently released. <laughs> I don't know what I meant by the best books out right now. What does that mean? Of all time. Honestly, honestly. Screw every classic. Do you know what? I hope this is a classic. It deserves to be a classic. Imagine having, like, as someone who writes, and as someone who writes non- non-fiction as well as fiction. Imagine having the guts to name your story after an entire genre and then after an entire country. The the gut the bravery that takes. And as someone who loves gothic, the gothic, you you'll have to look to someone who you know has lived or or loves or has been to Mexico many times if that representation is completely correct. But I think the person is I think it's an own voice's book. But um <laughs> As someone who loves the gothic, it deserves that title. It does. It deserves that title. It it correct. It is gothic. Well, check mark. Certified gothic. You earned it. You earned it. That's a that's a big that's a big title to earn. Like ooh, that's a big title to earn. Mexican gothic. That is a big title. Ooh, it's a good title. It's a great title. It's love the book. Love the title. But you know that's it takes some it takes some guts to to just name yourself like that. Wow. Okay, I'm impressed. But like, wow, I'm intimidated. (laughs) 
Anyways, read Mexican Gothic. But that's not an actual recommendation. It's a non-recommendation because there's no explicit queerness in it. Not wrecking the queers. I'm just wrecking a book. <laughs> yeah, I think that's all we have for I you today, guys. Um, remember to check us out on Facebook, Patreon, Instagram, Pinterest, Tumblr, Twitter. Did I say Twitter? I don't know. We need to write a list. We do. I have a list, I think. I do. I do have a list. Do I have a list? I don't have a list. <laughs> Ripping pieces. Fuck. Okay. But, um, you can check us out on our website and you can find all these things on our website, all our social medias, our shop, or you can find a link to our Patreon. You can find a link to donate money to us if you just got a random source of money and you're like, what do I do with it? You can give it to us if you want. That is www.makingqueerhistory.com um, That was like end of infomercial fast. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll slow down. www.m-a-k-i-n-g-q-u-e-e-r-h-i-s-t-o-r-y.com <laughs> Or you can email us at queerhistorypatreon at gmail.com. Um, do we have anything else to say? Oh, you can become a patron of our project and make the book club cooler and also, you know, be a bigger part of the book club. The details will come out soon. Or get the podcast episodes early at www.patreon.com slash queerhistory. Was that? That was good. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate your love and support. Yeah. And we're always happy to have you here. Come over yeah. to you. Exactly. All right. You can say the outro line. You never do. I always do. So, like, you can say the outro line. And remember, history is queerer than you think. We have always existed, and we are still here. Telling the stories of those long dead, we won't disappear. We're taking the pen back into our own hands. Tomorrow we have been
Making histories, just what we do.